This podcast is brought to you by the Albany Public Library main branch and the generosity of listeners like you. What is a podcast? God, Daddy, these people talk as much as you do. Receive cons on supervised learning. You know that genetics plays a huge role in our health, and more people are using genetic testing to determine risk for diseases like cancer for themselves and their kids than ever before. So I want to tell you about ORCID. It's the only company that does whole genome testing for embryos, testing before your child is born. If you're doing IVF, this is a clear choice now because now you can reduce risk for thousands of single gene disorders, including heritable forms of autism, pediatric cancers, and birth defects. Check them out at orchidhealth.com. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Razib with the Unsupervised Learning Podcast, and uh, I'm here to get uh, nerdy uh, about worms. Uh, maybe not the type of worms that you're. some of you are um, used to. Some of you, I know some of you do have scientific backgrounds and uh, when you're hearing me say worms, uh, with my particular interest, you might already suspect that we're going in a different direction than a normie on the street would think. Uh, I'm here with my friend, uh, Dr. Eric Schwartz. Uh, he's an assistant research professor at Cornell University up there in Ithaca. Um, he is freezing right now, and he's very cold. Uh, he is in the molecular biology and genetics department. He is a molecular geneticist, uh, and you know he has been getting into genomics. Uh, he's been around for a little while, um, you know been at Cold Spring Harbor, other places, Caltech, and uh, he has a passion uh, for the worm and what it can tell us. Um, and, uh, you know, before I let Erica, you know, talk about himself and a little bit more, um, I do want to say um, there's a book I read uh, 20 years ago. Um, it was like actually 2006, 2005. I read it in 2005 by Andrew Brown, a uh, British uh, science journalist. He also wrote The Darwin Wars and you know, I used to be friendly with Andrew, and um, he actually commissioned me to write uh, articles for The Guardian uh, in uh, – Google it. You'll see it. Uh, I actually wrote articles for The Guardian. Um, some of you might be surprised by that. Uh, but uh, – and he interviewed me for, I think, BBC um, in 2010. I've actually never listened to that interview. You know, But in any case, Andrew um, wrote, In the Beginning Was the Worm, Finding the Secrets of Life in a Tiny Hermaphrodite. And uh, you know, for a little while, um, I did uh, – uh, as an undergrad, I did work in a worm lab um, in Patrick Phillips' worm lab, uh, and he was switching from Elegans to Romanii, a different type of worm. And so I have a little bit of familiarity with 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 these uh, critters. I've looked at them under the light microscope and tried to culture them. I'm not the best bench, you know. I'm a bad bench biologist. I'm just going to be honest about that. So <laughs> that was not my future. Um, you know, my future was it was sitting in front of computers and. And digital stuff, but still, um, I have some familiarity with this field. I, I'm still super interested in it, uh, and I think it's it's really important for for regular people to know what some of these model organisms are. Uh, maybe I'll get a Drosophilus on sometime. You know, um, this is just a thought. But you know, the worm, C. elegans, is one of the model organisms that biologists use. Model organisms are, you know, there's a huge community. Uh, there are conventions all around these model organisms, and they basically try to use um, these small. Usually, they're small. They breed fast. They're easy to culture or store or you know breed or whatever. Uh, rays, um, and they give you insights, general biological insights, because biology, uh, in theory, is a science where you can get general insights. It's governed by laws, governed by models and theories uh, that apply across the tree of life. Um, this is an attempt, uh, you know, to be like physics, but that's fine because um, I guess you know 
I think Eric and I would both agree that there's an objective reality, and that objective reality has regularities and patterns. And uh, you know, science is the game of figuring out those regularities and patterns, why they're coming about, and their uh, contingent causal connections. You know, just sound a little pretentious there, but you know, <laughs> it's all, it's all, it's all for real here. Um, so Eric, you know, I've been talking a little bit. Um, I, I kind of want to know. Um, you know, I have like glimmer. I know I have some glimmers of this talking to you but um talk about how you got to where you are now as a worm genomics person um in terms of you know your training you know back at harvard uh and then you went to caltech um and you know you've been around for a while there was no real genomics kind of at the beginning and now it's no. everywhere so so uh so like like like, like shoot man like, like like tell us so i began Really, in the most goofy possible way, I was a young, idealistic kid growing up in the 1970s, which makes me a bit older than you or some of your audience, and I was reading science fiction. And one of the things I got out of science fiction, which I treasure this day, is a sense that the world is not a fixed place, that you know, the world we're in now at this moment that we can feel very bored by and we feel it's very mundane and fixed and static if you came to this place from a different planet, it would be a science fiction world. That's what Neil Stevenson said was the essence of science fiction. It didn't depend on machines or ray guns or flying saucers or women in bikinis or whatever. You know, it was actually the sense that the world was plastic and the humans could alter it through disciplined effort. And that's the feeling I got from all science fiction books I read growing up. And that's really what I decided to become a scientist. I was thinking about various things when you're a little kid, you can kinds of things. But I decided pretty early just from reading books and thinking about things was that I wanted to live in the world where I tried to make the world better. And I want to do it in a potent way. The 1970s were not a great time to grow up. You're a young, precocious American kid looking at American politics. It wasn't very ideal. Things weren't great 50 years ago either. You know, we had Nixon driven out of the white house. We had all kinds of crud. We lost the Vietnam war. It was not inspiring. And my, my family, much of my family was Irish American and, the assassinations of the Kennedys and left us thinking if you got a good politician, they'd die. So when I was a child, I thought, I want to make the world better. You can't do it through politics. How do you do it? And I'm saying, I want to become a scientist. I want to learn science and be able to use my intellect and have Archimedes' lever and move the world. And I more or less ended up doing that through a variety of positive and negative adventures in terms of trying various things. I ended up going to Harvard as undergraduate. I my very first job was protobioinformatics. So there was no word for it at the time. This was I, got a, I, got, I got a question. Yeah. Did you use Did you use quotes and did you cite a pro- – no, I'm just joking. Go on. Go on. <laughs> no. Oh. Oh, I mean I won't drag us too much in the weeds on that, but I can tell you about when I was my very first week at Harvard, they hand you a pamphlet. And the pamphlet, when I was there as a undergraduate in the early 80s, I'm sure hasn't changed much except a few things like URLs, says – if you quote blocks of text without attribution, you are plagiarizing. If you use someone else's words and you don't seriously rethink those words in your own words, you're plagiarizing. They were quite clear about it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah, ba- ba- back to the worm, back to the, the voyage to the worm. Back to happier topics, yes. Um, yeah, so I, I worked for one year as a, I took a year off of Harvard and I worked at UCLA in the laboratory of David Eisenberg on what turned into a published, very proto bioinformatics project on predicting how proteins float in the memories of cells. I was an, a very young undergrad working with David Eisenberg who did most of the work, but I was his assistant. I was a competent enough assistant that I'm getting a co-authorship on that paper, which I'm doing quite well. 
it ended up being one of the more heavily cited papers in the journal of microbiology, which before journals like Cell was actually considered a high-end journal. It was, it was a very high-end journal in the 60s and 70s, and it was still quite prestigious in the early 80s. So I ended up having a co-authorship on that. At the time, I had no inkling that I'd end up doing a great deal of this. I, I loved working with Dave. He was a wonderful mentor, an amazingly patient mentor with very precocious me and sometimes obnoxious me. So what that project entailed was simply looking at proteins, looking at the stream of amino acids that makes proteins, and trying to predict intelligently what part of protein would sit inside the membrane of a cell rather than inside the cell or outside the cell. And this, this kind of work was not done a great deal. You could occasionally do it, but people didn't do it a lot. It wasn't something you did every single moment of the day. So I got involved in that, and I enjoyed it. And then I went and tried to actually do real science, which meant working at the lab bench with living organisms. And as an undergraduate, I ended up working in the laboratory of Matthew Messelson. Those of your listeners who listen, who think more about molecular biology will recognize the name. Messelson did what some people call the most beautiful experiment in molecular biology. He and Frank Stahl showed through direct sedimentation in an ultracentrifuge that DNA truly has two strands, and they're big, intact strands. He was able to show this in ultracentrifuge with a seasoned gradient as, an undergrad, as a graduate student at Caltech. Many years later, he was a professor at, at Harvard, and I ended up working in his laboratory. He had moved to that point to Drosophila fruit flies, and I spent a year doing Drosophila genetics in his lab. And that was my first real taste of working with my own hands on genetics of living, breathing organisms. And I, I found I really enjoyed it once I got past the first month. The first month that there was a reasonable desire that I show whether I would be good enough to stay in the lab. And it was kind of a hazing for the first month. And I was, I was kind of overwhelmed, but I really wanted to work for the guy. I really wanted to work in that lab. So at the start of the summer, I worked in his lab. I told myself, I'm going to work for 90 days. If I can't stand it after 90 days, I'll stop. And fortunately, after 30 days or so, I felt better. And what I ended up doing was becoming very familiar with fruit flies. So you mentioned, Razib, model organisms. The reason why model organisms were a huge deal in the 20th century and still matter now, as you've talked about enormously at great length, we are now able to treat humans in some sense as a lab animal. We can sequence literally at will any DNA from any human. We can do population genomics analyses of humans that would have been imaginable a few decades ago or even a decade ago. We can do all kinds of powerful things with humans now. And this is a huge growing field, and it's very importantly so. One of the reasons we can do this now, we can do direct biology on humans now, is that, when, first of all, we have the tools to actually cheaply get a billion base pairs out of a human, which we had to develop. And then the second reason is when you get those base pairs and you map them onto a reference DNA sequence genome, you actually know what you're mapping onto. And the reason you can do that is humans and fruit flies and C. elegans worms and even E. coli bacteria and yeast cells are all one common ancient family, and they have protein-coding genes and encode proteins in all of them. And when you look carefully, you can see the marks of ancestry in all of them. You can see relatives of hemoglobins in fruit flies and drosophila. You can see every major protein in humans, with very few exceptions, has an evolution relevant of fruit fly or an acelgans. Now you can start to do serious genetic experiments on mammalian cells with things like CRISPR and get somewhere. But I want to I, I I just pause right here. I want to jump in and then I'll let you continue. I want to reiterate what you just said there. Uh, you know, Charles Darwin um, had a, you know, there was kind of like an assumption, a presupposition of common descent of the tree of life. Uh, but this was an assumption, a reasonable assumption. 
but it was an assumption. And then what happened with the um, you know modeling, the unlocking the structure of DNA is you actually looked at the substrate at the biochemical basis of inheritance. And when you looked at the biochemical basis of inheritance, everyone's like, damn, this is all the same. It's all DNA. It's source and, code. Common source yeah, code. And you look at the DNA. It's not common source code, and it has an original kernel. There's a core there. And that core is common to a lot of organisms. And so Darwin's conjecture, because it was a conjecture, uh, was totally validated on the biophysical scale. And so um, I think that's an amazing fact that we take for granted. But, you know, it was kind of a big deal in the late 20th century when people were like, wow, yeah, our assumptions were totally correct. Um, you know, they, were, they, they went looking for, like, life, like, in the crust and other places. And there were no other alternative types of life. Life is one. So, I just you know, you were talking about CRISPR and stuff. I just want to jump in and reiterate that for that listeners. That is directly – that's directly relevant because the whole thing is when you first wanted to understand life at all, I think biologists have always want to know how we humans tick. That's very proper, very natural. If you go back enough decades, you see people like Max Delbruck choosing literally to work on the viruses infecting E. coli bacteria, phage. Why did Delbruck do that? Not because Delbruck was a goof who wanted to pick a weird organism. At that moment in time, the 1940s, it was literally the most complicated living thing you could hope to try to understand. It was at the bleeding edge of rational understanding. A bacterial virus phage was your absolute bleeding edge of something you might dissect in the, at the bench and understand what's going on. And then when Matthew Messelson and Franklin Stahl did their beautiful experiment showing physically you could show two discrete unbroken strands of DNA in a DNA helix, they went to E. coli. And as Matt later told a man who wrote a beautiful history, Horace Judson, the eighth day of creation, he said, you know, that felt like going to a mouse because Matt Messels had been trained in the phage genetics school, and he was used to thinking of bacterial viruses about the level of complexity you wanted to work with. When he, when he and Frank Stahl decided to work on E. coli, they were being kind of brave. They were going to a bigger, complicated thing, and it worked, and it was great. By my time in the early 1980s as an eager undergraduate, Matt had moved his lab through Sophilana Gaster, as had many of the original molecular biologists of the original generation of molecular biology. Because at that point, the frontier of the limit of what you could understand had moved beyond E. coli to things like Brewer's yeast, Cerevisiae, which you make beer with or bread with, to fruit flies, Drosophilina gaster, to Cerevisiae elegans, the nematode worm I'll tell you about a bit. A few other simple organisms were being used. Um, mammalian cells were being tried in culture. But fundamentally, in biology, you always push, if you're trying to learn things that are really valuable, you try to go to the limit of what can be done and no further. And it's a matter of judgment and luck what that limit is, but that limit moves with time. So the model organisms for much late 20th century were the limit. And their, their, their scientific justification was, if you want to understand how animals grow, how do organs develop, how do we get from a single fertilized undifferentiated egg to a complex human or any kind of complex creature? How do cells move? How do they locomote? How do they duplicate their genomes without breaking things? How do they pump ions in and out? How do they do all these wonderful things? You have to go to the simplest instance of the thing you're trying to understand. And that's what model organisms all are. Attempts to pick good organisms in the lab that are simple as manageable, but show you the principle you want to learn. So and so, um, uh, okay, so I'm sorry I interrupted because um, simple, manageable principles you want to learn. Um, 
you know, I, I, I would say that I think the different model organisms um, have different utilities. So, you know, uh, Drosophila melanogaster, I mean, Mendelian genetics and Drosophila melanogaster are basically joined at the eye stalk or something, you know, I don't know what, or like at the, uh, you know,